there's a funny thing, an interesting thing that's been going on in our culture over the last maybe 15 years or so. There's been a lot of uh, literature coming out from uh, angry atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens, who died uh, uh, about three years ago, and uh, Sam Harris, and uh, Dan Dennett, and uh, Richard Dawkins. They're angry. They're angry with the God whom they claim does does not exist. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I'm not too worried about the angry atheists. I appreciate a lot of the questions they raise. Uh, I'm glad that they take it at least seriously enough to wrestle with it and want to argue about it. I'd love for them to be able to... to, uh, not make caricatures of God. I think they're caricaturing a lot. But I'm glad that it matters to them. What I'm a little more concerned about is those of us who uh, are maybe Sunday believers or semi-believers. We claim to believe, but we really don't think about it at all. And what we claim to believe doesn't really make a big difference in the way we live our lives. Because we haven't thought about it a lot, because other things keep distracting us from thinking about it, I don't know what the reasons are. But last week we talked about what it means to believe. We talked about the fact that to believe means that we believe it intellectually, we embrace it intellectually, we assent to it. It also means that when we Ascent to it intellectually, it's not just an abstract belief, but it's, it's a concrete relational belief. We believe in someone, not just in some ideas. It's a, it's a belief of our emotions, of our heart. There's a, there's a strong emotional belief to it, uh, aspect to our belief. And it affects our will. It what we believe, when we believe the way the Bible talks about belief, when we believe the way the, the writers of the Apostles' Creed, Creed talk about belief, when we believe that way, it does affect the way we live our day-to-day lives. It affects every decision we make. It affects what we do and what we don't do. It affects what we do with our time and with our energy and with our money and with other resources. It affects the way we live out our relationships. When we believe the way that the writers of the Apostles' Creed Uh, use the word belief, the way scripture uses belief, it changes everything. It just changes everything. So as we're talking throughout this whole series, keep in the forefront of your mind that what we're talking about ought to change everything about our lives. It ought to change everything about everything that comes into our lives and how we view it, and what we do with it. Today we're talking about God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now the Bible doesn't try to make a case for God's existence. It just assumes it. It just assumes it. Exodus 3, Moses has an encounter with God. If you know the story of Moses, he was... Uh, born of Hebrew uh, parents, but he grew up in Pharaoh's, the Pharaoh of Egypt's household. Uh, when he's about 40 years of age, he gets into trouble and he flees and he spends 40 years shepherding sheep 
uh, in uh, the wilderness area of Midian. And then when he's in Midian, he has this encounter with God. He's out with his sheep, and he passes by this bush, and it's burning. And he walks by, and he looks back, because the bush is burning, but it's not burning up. He says, whoa, I need to, see, I need, I need to stop and look at this. And he realizes something is happening that he was not expecting at all. And he has an encounter with God that day. And God tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is thinking, wait a minute. I left Egypt 40 years ago because the Pharaoh wanted to kill me. Why would I go back there? And so he has this running encounter with God where he's trying to convince God to find somebody else. And God had already made up his mind that Moses was the guy, so he wasn't budging. But along the way, Moses asked God a number of questions. One of the questions is, okay, so I go back to Egypt. And uh, I, get, I, I meet with uh, Israelites there, and you know how they are, God. They're just, they're just stubborn. And they're hard to convince. And what am I going to say to them? And if they ask me, who sent me? What shall I say? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. That's my name. You tell them that I am has sent you. Now, that's a funny expression. I am who I am. What does God mean by that? Well, he means several things. He means, first of all, that he really does exist and he's always existed. It means that he has no restraints, no limits, no constraints. It means that he is eternal and unchangeable. It means he really can do whatever he wants to do. And so Moses says, okay. Eventually he says, okay, I'll go. Now, this is important because when God says that to Moses, what he's really saying is, what I'm asking you to do, I can do. I can fulfill my promises. And throughout Scripture, God, the Scriptures come back again and again and again to this Exodus event where uh, Moses, under the power, in the power of God, by God's provision, led the people of Israel out of slavery. And the point that Scripture keeps making each time is that the God who is, the God who is I am, I am who I am, is the God who you can trust. He fulfills his promises because he is, um, he has no limits because he is eternal and unchangeable. You can trust him. So, first big point here. I believe in God, the God who is. Not just a figment of, the, of our imagination, not just a myth projection, not just uh, anything coming out of us. God is a God who is. He exists. And, kind of a sub-point under that, because we are contingent beings, which means we don't exist in and of ourselves. We exist because God made us. We're not going to know ourselves until we know the God who made us, the God who is.
God is, God is, and second, God is one. Now, the Apostles' Creed doesn't say that explicitly. The Nicene Creed does. But the, the Apostles' Creed means that God is one because there's only one God. The Israelites, for generations upon generations upon generations, would, restru- would recite the Shema in each synagogue service. Pious Jews would say it morning and evening. The Shema is from Deuteronomy 6. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it continues, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Because there is no other God. Because there's only one God. That's the big point of the Shema. The uh, Israelites had a hard time with that. They believed that God was one, but they kept hedging their bets throughout all of their history. They'd worship the God who revealed himself to them as the great I am, and they would worship other gods as well. They'd worship Baal, and they'd worship Moloch, they would offer their children in sacrifice, they would, I mean, they worshiped all kinds of gods. We don't do that today. Except we do. We just have different gods who are a lot more subtle. I remember, I, a number of you know that I spent uh, over 20 years working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, a number of those years were with graduate students, uh, PhD students at Harvard University. And I remember when I was at Harvard, uh, several of the folks in the, in the uh, graduate fellowship at Harvard were uh, studying, were doing chemistry. And... Um, there was this lab on campus, uh, the Corey Lab, Elias Corey, who was considered at the time maybe the world's foremost organic chemist, a Nobel laureate. And I would hear stories about the Corey Lab. Uh, people would come into the lab early in the morning, they'd bring two coats. And they'd hang one coat up and they'd hide another one so that if they had to leave during the day, uh, Corey wouldn't know that they left because they, they just feared him. They were afraid of him. And, you know, there was a suicide in the, in the Corey lab while I was there. There actually, there, I think there were at least three suicides of people who were part of that Corey lab over the years. And I'm not saying that Elias Corey was responsible for that. But what happened was that people were so driven by their desire to succeed and by their desire to impress Corey because if Corey liked you, your career was set, that they treated him like a god. Small g, god, but they treated him like a god. What's an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that you love or serve or seek or trust in or fear more than God. And by that definition, there are times where each one of us is an idolater. 
Each one of us. There are times when we um, fear um, because of health reasons or financial reasons, and we trust in other things to get those for us. There are times when we um, treat other people like gods, like people in Cory Lab treated Elias Cory. There are times when we treat our children like gods, where we give them everything they want at any cost. Times when we treat our spouse that way. But all of us, at one point or another, dabble in idolatry. And some of us don't just dabble, we run into it. We're workaholics. We give all of our best time and energy to our work rather than to our God and to the people that God has placed around us. We love our work or the perks of our work more than we love God and love other people. You can think of a lot of things, ways that we do that. I think of athletes who take uh, performance-enhancing drugs even though they know that it's going to hurt them physically. Lance Armstrong and Roger Clemens and, uh, you know, Alex Rodriguez and, you know, the list is long. That's idolatry. It's, it's wanting success and acclaim in ways that are destructive. You know, again and again and again, the scriptures warn us against the gods of money, sex, and power. Not that money, sex, and power are wrong or bad in and of themselves, but when they become bigger than our love for God and our trust in God, they become idols. And so, um, when we say that God is one, what we're really saying is we will not allow idols to come into our lives because we know that all idols are pale imitations and false gods. Of They cannot compare with the one true living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Creed also tells us that God is Father. Now, let me start by saying that the word Father is a figure of speech. It's not saying that God is male. He's not male. When uh, in Genesis where it says that we are created in the image of God. It says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, each reflect the image of God. And in fact, together, they reflect the, reflect the image of God better than one or the other alone. God is not male. And God doesn't care about males more than he cares about females. It's a figure of speech. There's some important distinctives made here, because of cultural reasons, but, but I want to make clear, God is not male. Um, it does mean, however, that God is a person. God is personal. 
And God is relational. From all eternity, God has been God the Father. He didn't just become God the Father when Jesus Christ took on flesh and came into human history. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. He's always been God the Father. He's always revealed himself to us as God our Father. Jesus, when he uh, taught the Lord's Prayer, he taught us the Lord's Prayer. You remember how it started? How does it start? Our Father, yeah. Our Father who art in heaven. Um, we, Jesus is telling us he wants us to relate to God as our Father. Um, and as our Father, he's our protector, he's our provider. Psalm 68.5 says, a father, the, the, our God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God is the one who cares about widows and orphans. He cares about the least and the last and the lost. God is a father. By his very nature, he's a father. And what we, what we know about what it means to be a human father comes from what we can understand about God as our father, not the other way around. Because God is our father, he protects us. Deuteronomy 1 says, the Lord, your, Moses is talking to the Israelites and he says, the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached that place. He's saying that God is our father provides for us, protects us. He carries us. He carries his sons and his daughters. Like a father carries a son or a daughter. He carries us. He takes us through. When Psalm 23 talks about going through the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil, why is that? Because you are with me. Because God is with us through all of what life brings. We don't have to be afraid. Even when we know we're completely out of control because our Father is carrying us. Jesus compared earthly fathers with our Heavenly Father. He said in uh, Matthew 7, you can put that on the screen if you want. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We know a little bit about what it means to be a father as human fathers. We know a little bit about what it's like to want good things for our children. How much more will our Father in heaven, who defines what fatherhood is, how much more will he look out for us and protect us and give us the things that we really need, the good things that we need? How much more will a father who is perfectly good 
love us perfectly. One of my favorite images of God as Father comes in Luke chapter 15. Uh, for those of you who know the story, Jesus is uh, having this uh, discussion, if you will, with uh, religious leaders who are ticked off with him. They're angry with him because he's spending time with sinners instead of spending time with them. And they want to know why he's spending time with the wrong people. And so Jesus tells three parables about how much the Father cares, how much God the Father cares about people who are lost and lonely. And the third parable, he begins by saying there was a father who had two sons. And one day the younger father came to him and said, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. I want it now. I'm paraphrasing the story. I want my share of the inheritance now. I don't want to stay here anymore. And his father's heart breaks, but he gives his father what he asks for. He gives his, uh, gives his, his son what he asks for. He gives him his share of the inheritance. The son goes. Now stop and think for a minute. What is that, father say, what is that son saying? He's saying, I don't want to wait for you to die. I'm tired of waiting for you to die, old man. I want my inheritance now. And when I get it, I'm gone. How disrespectful is that? How awful is that? There's a guy named Ken Bailey who's a kind of a missiologist, anthropologist. He did some research among uh, older cultures and he, and he told this story that is recorded in Luke 15. And it's, now, how would you treat a father like that? Oh, we would stone him. How would you treat a son like we would stone him? That, that behavior is just completely unacceptable. We would stone him. And they meant it. So the son takes off. And he goes off to this far distant land. And, and uh, Luke 15 tells us he just squandered his money in wild living. Eventually his money runs out and he gets into really difficult straits. And he gets a job feeding pigs. Here he is, a good Jewish boy feeding pigs. And he's looking at the food the pigs are eating and it starts to look good to him. He wants it, but no one gives him anything. Why? Because in that, pigs are more valuable than he is, according to the pig owners. And one day, it's, the text says, he comes to his senses and he says to himself, you know, in my father's house, even the servants are well cared for, well fed. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back home and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me back as one of your hired servants. And he kind of, he starts on his way home. He's got this mantra going in his head. Meanwhile, the father's back home. And he's yearning for his son. And you get the sense that every day he kind of gets up and he looks out to see if his son is coming home. And then one day he looks off in the distance and he sees kind of, he sees somebody coming. And, he's, and he strains his eyes and he sees and he looks and he looks and he says, yes, it's my son. That's my son. And he, and he just starts running. And he's 
got these robes on. He's kind of holding his robe up and he's running. And people are looking and say, what's wrong with this man? What has happened to him? But he runs and he gets to his son and he just grabs him and embraces him. And the son tries to say, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. And the father just squeezes him. He says, quick, get him a ring, get him sandals, get him a, get him a change of clothes. Get him, we're going to have a feast. And what Jesus is saying in this parable, there's more, a lot more to the story, but what Jesus is saying is that's the way God your Father sees you. Even when you spit in his face, he still loves you. Even when you say to him, I wish you were dead, he still loves you. Even when you squander the resources he gives you, he still loves you. And the big story of the Bible is of a God who is Father who's continuing to look for and woo his rebellious children, his runaway children, wants to bring them back home. He's talking about you and me. God our Father wants us to come home and stay home and rest in his love. God is our Father. And God our Father is almighty. The word almighty in the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word Shaddai. Shaddai means almighty. You've, maybe some of you, probably not many of you, remember an old Amy Grant song, El Shaddai, God Almighty. That name for God first appears in Genesis 17. What happens in Genesis 17 is God had made a promise to Abram and Sarai that, that they would have a child and years have passed and it hasn't happened and all kinds of things happened along the way. And then um, Abram and Sarai get these sort of visitors who kind of are angelic messengers ultimately becomes clear and uh, they tell him you're going to you know within a year you're going to have a child and uh, at that point Abram is 99 years old his wife Sarah is right up there as well and they laugh Abram laughs, Sarai laughs. They get, but they just laugh. They just think it's ridiculous. How in the world can somebody our age have a child? This is the most absurd thing that anyone could ever say to us. And then they have a child. And Abraham's name gets changed. Abram's name gets changed to Abram, Abraham, the father of many nations. And Sarai gets her name changed to Sarah because she gives birth to a son. God delivers on his promise. He made his promise under his name, God the Almighty, El Shaddai. 
If you go all the way back to the, 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 all the, way to the end of the Bible, last book of the Bible, Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, what we're told is that God can do whatever he wants to do. Things that are impossible with human beings are possible with God. God can bring forth a son out of a virgin. God can uh, make the sun stop still for an hour or longer. God can speak creation into existence with a single word. God is the God who is almighty. When the prophet Jeremiah wondered whether God could really restore the nation of Israel after the Babylonians had conquered them and sent them into exile, the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Now, let me go to my next point and think about these two terms together. God as Father and God is Almighty. And could you show that clip for a second? This handle's really nice. Yep. It's a great ride and it has great gas mileage. Oh, beats choosing a great ride or a great gas mileage. <laughs> yeah, that'd be like using nuts or bolts. <laughs> Wonder what these nuts are for. I like and better. Uh-huh. I like Anne better too. What's funny about, you know, the, the, see, what the Apostles' Creed is saying is it's putting two words together, Father and Almighty. They don't seem to naturally go together. And the Bible says, but they do go together. And the Apostles' Creed says they do go together. God is Father and Almighty, and we like and better. Right? So think about what it says. Father goes in one direction. It's personal. It's, uh, you know, it, 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 and it has a sense of, you know, dear father, or we, we could even say papa. Although when the Bible talks about father and when the Apostles' Creed uses father, and even when, when Jesus says you can refer to God as Abba, father, it's a, it is a term of endearment. It's very, very personal and intimate but it's not at all irreverent. In the midst of it, when we talk, call God Father, when we call him Daddy even, we, it comes out of deepest intimacy and deepest respect. So there's a both and. There's, there's a, there's a, so we like and better there too. Know what you're talking about when you use the word Abba or Daddy. It's appropriate, but it's appropriate when we bring the right attitude, the right motivation to it, the right understanding of it. So, but it goes in that direction. When you think of Almighty, 
you think of unlimited power, which doesn't seem personal and intimate. In fact, it seems scary, right? Aren't you scared of people who have ultimate power? To call him Father means that he is a personal God who cares about us. To call him Almighty means that he is able to do whatever needs to be done. No limits with him. To call him Father means that we can trust him in every circumstance because he will do whatever needs to be done to take care of us. Romans 8, 31 and 32 expresses this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So what's the limit to the all things in verse 32? Nothing. There is no limit. Whatever we truly need, our Father will make sure that we have because he is the Father Almighty. Almighty God. So Father means he's the God who cares for me. Almighty means he can do whatever needs to be done for me. He is almighty. He can do anything he wants to do. He is Father. He will do all that is necessary for our well-being. He is almighty. He can. He is Father. He will. I love the way David kind of thinks about this in Psalm 62. He doesn't use the words Father or Almighty, but Psalm 62, we don't know the circumstances, but we know based on the psalm that things are happening in David's life. There are enemies arrayed against him who want to crush him. But he begins the psalm by saying, my soul will find rest in the Lord. And he continues talking about God, but he gets to verses 11 and 12, and he, thinks, and he says, two things God has spoken, one thing have I heard, you, O Lord, are strong, and you, O Lord, are loving. So Psalm 62 brings together these two ideas of Father and Almighty. You are strong and you are loving. I will rest in you. I will trust in you. I will walk with you and I will not fall because you will hold me up. I can trust you. When you know the Father Almighty, then you can have strength and courage and hope to face the worst that life can throw your way. That's what David is talking about in Psalm 62. That's the experience of all of us who know God the Father Almighty. So, implications. God is. He is. He exists. And he's eternal, eternal and unchangeable. That means we can be confident in our faith and in expressing our faith. When we know that God is, 
We don't have to worry about the, those who argue against it. When we know that God is, we don't have to worry about what's going to happen with our life. God is one. He's the only God. Every idol is a cheap imitation. Every idol will fail us. But God, who is the one, the only God, is trustworthy. He will never fail us. He's our Father. We can come into his presence boldly and joyfully. We can pray and know that he hears our prayers. He's almighty. We can rest in his protection and joyfully pursue his purpose. We know if God calls us to do something, he will enable us to do it because he can do whatever he wants to do, whatever he needs to do. He's Father and Almighty. We can trust him in and through all things. I've been thinking about what it means to really believe that God is Father Almighty. If I really believed that, I would pray a lot more and I'd worry about my kids a lot less. If I believed that God, truly believed that God was the Father Almighty, I would uh, probably obsess about the Patriots more, uh, less rather, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, read the Bible more. If I were, if I truly believed that God was Father Almighty, I wouldn't get uptight about what people think of me. I'd rest in the fact that the God who made me loves me. If I truly believed that God was the Father Almighty, I would base my life on what's important to him, not what's important, not what's important to the people around me. I'd let go of my own ambitions or other ambitions for me. And I would press into the call of God for my life. If I truly believed in God the Father Almighty, I would work with joy and with peace, and I would sleep with a free and uncluttered mind. If I truly believed that God was the Father Almighty, I would love him with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I would love the people around me with everything that's in me because I knew, because I know that that's what God wants for me. Let me ask you this. If you truly believed that God was the Father Almighty, what would you do? How would you finish this sentence? If I truly believed God the Father Almighty, I would 
what would you do? What I'd like to ask you to do is to think about that question and write out a response this week. In fact, better do it today. Write out a response. If I truly believed in God the Father Almighty, I would write that out. And after you've written that out, turn it into a prayer and pray it back to God. Let me pray for us now. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to believe in you as Father. Help us to believe in you as Almighty. Help us to believe that you're with us. Help us to believe that you're for us. Help us to believe that you're all-powerful and all-knowing and always present so that we need not fear. And Lord, help us today or this week to really press into these things and think about them and turn them back to you in prayer. I ask this for myself and for all of us in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.